This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Cody, I know you sent like a bunch of articles around here that we typically get to on the roundup. Sometimes. Yeah, you tend to distract us a lot from our main objectives most times. I know, that's a little unfair. Not most times. Sometimes. Mm -hmm. But today, we almost have like the... <laughs> Bill, I don't know what, you know, what you'll... You take as a compliment, you know, a, a, a scientist that is just like enamored with the idea of lethality of broadheads, um, engineering guru and broadhead design or something like that. So honestly, I, I was hoping to, that you would find an article, Cody, that would say something along the lines of why why archery is not as lethal as guns. That would have really gotten Bill's hackles raised, I think. That could have got me riled up. Huh? <laughs> could have, or we could just pretend that there is an article yeah, that says yeah. that. Yeah, I, I could go find one really quickly. Well, I mean, uh, obviously there's a uh, a discussion to be had there. Well, before we do that, why don't we introduce Bill. Bill, I'm not going to pretend to say your last name correctly. I am. I do have Afrikaans in my blood. Uh, well, not in my blood, just based on how I was raised in South Africa. I assume it's Dutch derivative, the last name, but I don't want to assume anything. Yeah, it is. It's uh, Vander Heiden. means like of the of the heather of the fields um, in Dutch. Wow, isn't that appropriate? Yeah, I like to think of it as like of the wilderness, but uh, yeah, of the of the outdoors anyway. Well, Bill, uh, introduce uh, yourself to the audience that may not know. Who uh, Bill Funder Hafer Pfeiffer is? Sorry, what? just I just messed it up. Well, you didn't even look at it. That's not even. You just made up letters there. What? I did make up letters. Bill Funder Hayden. Bill Funder Hayden. Are you saying yeah. Thunder? No, 
Vanderhaven. Oh, yeah, I'm trying yeah. to be American or Vanderhaven. I would say it in South African, like a Dutch. I would say Vanderhaven. Mm. Yeah, that's too much. That's that's just that seems like you're being pretentious when you say it that way. <laughs> it's just saying um, it how you would say it in Afrikaans. But anyway, sorry, Bill. That's right. I'm uh yeah. So a little bit about me. I'm the currently the owner, lead engineer for Ironwell Outfitters. Make premium broadheads, archery components, some ultralight knives. But um, basically, I'm a long uh, I'm an engineer for a long time, developing products for other companies before starting my own company maybe five years ago. And I love bow hunting. Um, and I uh, I spend almost all my time trying to become a better bow hunter and develop products to help make me a better bow hunter. Um, and that's kind of me in a nutshell. You know, I'm, I feel very strongly about good engineering um, and having good engineering in, in the U.S. And, um, and applying, you know, good science and engineering to, to bow hunting so that I'm, I'm more lethal and, and then try to help people, other people be more lethal as well. Isn't that the key? Cody, you were trying to be lethal last week, right? Chasing antelope. Uh, how good? How how effective were you in being lethal last week? I was. Uh, I can tell you this: that my equipment did not fail. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I never. Uh, I never gave the aerodynamics of an arrow in flight a chance, or the lethality of a broadhead to be tested. I did get close. Um, I'm going to say this again, and I may say this every episode for several months that. I'm I I very seldom say things that are like I'm right, don't argue with me. But I'm pretty sure public land spot and stock antelope hunting with a bow may be the hardest hunting there is in North America. I mean it is it doesn't matter how good you are, a whole bunch of stars have to align. L- luck is involved. I'm 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 making that statement. So if you disagree, well, let's ask the uh, let's ask the the guy who owns an archery brand. True or not true? It's very tough because I, I hunt public land, um, you know, Colorado for antelope as well. I'm actually not hunting this year. I thought I was going to be in um, in Alaska doing caribou hunt right now, so I didn't really plan a a um, archery antelope hunt. But I can tell you, in the last few years, uh, two for three. Um, and filling tags on decent bucks, but it's not, yeah, it's difficult. Um, it's uh, pretty low, pretty low odds in the area. And, and, and last year I didn't fill my tag and it partly is because of, they were so, so badly pressured. And even there was even some poaching going on. I saw guys shooting at them with rifles mm-hmm. during the archery season. Um, so they were beyond normal, even pressured. Um, last year but yeah even with even without that it, it for sure can be tough in that wide open country it's hard to um get a spot in stock to work out but no doubt two out of three though two out of three years it's not bad bill do you have any like advice for cody i think cody's percentages are way lower than that <laughs> <laughs> my advice on on that is basically hunt hunt the terrain more than the than the antelope um <clears throat> like there there's I, and I should listen to myself when I say that I go after, you know, bucks and bulls all the time when there's not really a chance that I'm going to get a good stock on them just because of the location they're at. But really, um, and if there's not a lot of animals, you're kind of stuck with what you got. But that's what I would say is that you need a, you need an antelope close to some terrain where you have a chance of, you know, sneaking in on them. Um, you know, a, a, a dry creek uh, near some hills or ridge, some little tighter country. It's hard in that big open country for sure. And then, you know, water holes. If you can find a water hole that's out of sight off the, that you can't see from the gravel roads, everybody's driving around there um, and, and go set up on a water hole. That's a pretty effective way, but it's got to kind of be one that's uh, more out of sight, or a little bit further, mm-hmm. it seems like, to work out. I will have you know, Dr. Kroger, that in five years, not not in a five-year span, but in the five times that I've gone on archery antelope hunts, I'm three for five. That's good. That's not bad. This year's not, this bad. Year's not over. I'm either going to be four for six or, or, 
or three for six. Um, and I took, I took a, uh, and this is not a knock on the guy that I took, but you know, I, I took a guy who this was his second hunt ever hunted a whitetail in Texas last year. And this was his second hunt ever. And he wanted to come. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm about to bring you to Colorado to buy a $400 tag. And, and, uh, we would have a better chance if we bought Powerball tickets probably because it's a very hard thing to do. Um, we were mm-hmm. in Antelope. We got under 70 yards twice. I was at 51 one time and he busted me on the draw. So we uh, – and uh, very, I, I like the phrase hunt the terrain, not the antelope. We pretty much sneak up on spots that we think there's going to be an antelope as opposed to ever trying – because – to get to where you could see if there was one, he's going to see you too. So we, we sneak up on spots, crawl over hills that we think there might be an antelope down the backside of um, because of the terrain. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But And then you get desperate and you see one across a flat pool table and think that you're going to hide behind a 12-inch sagebrush and crawl over to it and really all – I, I know this, but I still do it. All you end up doing is pressuring the antelope. You have no chance and you make them more skittish. I shouldn't do it, but I do. But I love it. I, I love spotting stock. I can't sit a water hole. I get bored and, and think that I need to get out and walk around. I, I, it's just not my nature. I'm not good at sitting. So it was a blast, but we didn't uh, we didn't even fling an arrow. Oh, well, that's why it's cold hunting. Right. That's why it's gold hunting. We did an entire day of hunting cliches at the end of the second day. I'm like, we're going to run through a few guide cliches real quick here. Now, it wasn't a guide situation. He's a friend of mine, but I said, I feel like I'm your guide, so I've got a whole bunch of cliches, right? That's why they call it hunting. That's If, if, it, was, if it was easy, everyone would do it. We said that a lot, right? Like, get, <laughs> that could have been the tattoo for last week. <laughs> Cody, did we get any text messages this week? Did everyone cheer that we were back on the on the reg- on the regular? Um, we did get a few text messages and a few uh, a few comments. James from Ohio. Also, really quickly, I figured out how to label these people. I don't think anyone can understand the immense amount of work I was having to do because every text I got. I had to scroll all the way back. Like there, I, I couldn't figure out how to label them in this text system that we have, but I figured that out. So if you've texted us before, no need to reintroduce yourself every time. Like Good job. Good job, Cody. James from Ohio, um, who is our uh, – James is the one that when we didn't have the roundup, he was upset because he felt like he had to pay attention at work on Monday because he didn't have anything to listen oh, to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he uh, – we, we talked a little bit about uh, distance shooting. You know what? I think this is a really interesting conversation. Bill, do you f- – we talked on the roundup last week slightly about uh, – The archer that put a 126-yard shot into a, a buck? Yeah. That's and, what we talked about, right? Yeah. And the balance between – let me reword it to apply. Bill made me think of that conversation when he was talking earlier. Is there a balance – or what is your personal balance on should the equipment like is there a time when we try to make the equipment so good that we don't have to be as good of a hunter good lord someone else reword that for me there there's a valid point there but i can't but i can't is there a is there a, is there a line from a, a sort of effectiveness perspective that takes away from the fair chase component of it maybe that's part of it too but are some of us just striving to find like i think golf is the perfect analogy like i think tiger wood could take a pair of a set of wooden shaft clubs that were made 140 years ago and and i could take the brand new top of the line carbon blah blah blah. I don't play golf. And I think some people chase the equipment instead of chasing improving their skill level. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of the easy it's easy to go buy a new bow, right? It's it's hard to become a lot better hunter. Um but you know at the same time 
I kind of like, I think having the whole package is what's made me more, I, I, I'd say lethal, you know, as I look at like elk hunting, I've been very successful public land elk hunting in Colorado over the last 10 years. And, and, you know, that's where the odds are 10% or something like that. And it's, it's really a combination of things for me. It's under, you know, knowing the animal behavior a lot better, understanding how they're going to act, um, you know, compared to like 20 years ago, um, I, where I didn't know that stuff as much, you know, improving my fitness so I can get up to the top of that mountain when I need to. And, you know, it's kind of the whole package to me, having the gear, having good gear, um, is part of it, but being proficient at it still takes a lot of time. Um, yeah, I, I think that just cause a bow can shoot hundred yards or 120 yards, uh, doesn't, doesn't mean the guy that just bought that bow can make that shot, right? It takes a lot of work on tuning the bow, um, a lot of practice, and and I wouldn't shoot an animal that far personally. I just know that, and I shoot at 100 yards almost every day. I just know that um, well, yeah. 60 is more doable. 100 yards, and literally, I shoot 100 yards. I got targeted 100 yards. I'll put a couple arrows into it every day. Um, and it's an 18 inch square target. I don't, I don't miss it. And I usually hit, you know, maybe eight inch group, sometimes six, you know, I'm shooting decent groups in it. I still want to shoot 120. I know that every 10 yards, you know, it, it's, it sounds strange, but 110 is a lot harder than hundred. 120 is harder than 110. I know cause I practice that that far. Um, but it's, each person should practice and know, you know, the really effective yardage. And that's where I feel it can be a problem. If a guy just knows, hey, my bow could shoot 120, 130 yards. I took a shot once at Total Archery Challenge at that distance, so I'm going to launch it at an animal. That that's not um, that's not very ethical. If you if you don't, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't shoot a distance which is the furthest you've ever shot and you've done it a couple of times, right? That's not really proficiency there. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's exactly ask me, but. That's how I kind of feel about long range shooting is your furthest shot should be a shot that you're going to, you can make, you know, that you feel like you can make it every time or a large percentage of the time. Um, and not too many people is that 125 yard shot or whatever. And I don't know this person particularly, but um, not a, there's not a lot of people that have practiced are that good to be able to be able to make that shot a high percentage of the time would be my guess. And I think even part of the, even, even to take that question further on the range thing, I'm not, I'm not, I, I said this last week, I'm not judging anyone. If, if you can kill an animal consistently and ethically at that distance, then, and, and, and it's an illegal scenario, I'm, I'm with you, go for it. I don't, but that, that's not, my quest is, and I, I, I shoot at a hundred too. And, I only have a I only have a pin set to seventy. I mean, I'm I, that's that's my limit in the field, and and it's only recently that I've gotten back to the point where I'd feel that confident. But I've I that's not my quest. That's the point. My, my quest is not to find equipment that'll let me shoot farther. My quest is to get closer to the animal, and it, it it's not a judgment of people. There's people out there taking 1,000, 11, 1,200 yard shots with rifles on wildlife. And if that's your thing, I don't have a judgment on it, but that's not what I, that's not why I do it. Now, I mean, if I was, if the kill was so important that my family wasn't going to eat next week and, and then, uh, you know, I would be on a quest to make it more quicker and more efficient, but I want the stock. I, 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 I want to figure out how to get to 70 on an antelope as opposed to get my bow to shoot the antelope at 120. Did you guys um, talk, since we're in bow season right now, obviously a bunch of monster mule deer are hitting the ground, right? Some really good mule deer in velvet. Did you see that picture of the guy that shot the mule deer in the face? No. With a bow and arrow? I no, don't know. And I think, I, I don't know where, I'll try to look at on, I think it was on one of the big Muley Instagram pages. I can't, I can't find it anymore. Um, but it was all over social media. And 
a lot of people were negative about it because and I, I would be in the same camp. I think his first shot was just left of the buck's eye, and I don't know if it was a bad shot. Was he frontal or whatnot? And it went right through here, the, like just under the orbital. And then he put in a second shot to kill it. Um, anyway, my thing was, you know, why post it? It, it, was a, it, was a, it was a piece that was just like, what the hell, man? Or just pull the arrow out. Because you could see the shaft of the arrow sticking out of the eye with the veins. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know why you'd post that either. Jeez. Another text, Tim from Saskatchewan, who was one of our one of our loyal texters. Tim's the one that I accused of being a new hunter, got him mixed up, and he corrected me a couple of weeks ago. But we also talked last week about what, uh, how young is too young was one of our discussions that we had last week. Um, and uh, Tim's, Tim just let us know that uh, you have to be 11 in Saskatchewan to take hunter safety, 12 to big game hunt, 12 to purchase a hunting license. Um, but he took a, his son with him. You know, at seven, his son was there, and at nine, his son actually saw a shot happen. I don't know what happened at seven. Maybe, maybe his, uh, maybe felt. Bill, do you have kids? Bill, do you have kids? I do. I have, I have four kids. Yep. They're aged 19 to 26 now. Oh, so nice. They're all out of the house. Yeah, they're all out of the house as of this year. So. <laughs> <laughs> How would you answer that question, Bill? When is it, it is what's the question again? What was the the article was like? How is young, it when is it too young? How young, how young is, is too young? young? Yeah, um, I don't know. You know, I, I started when I was twelve. Um, I don't feel like that was too young, personally. I uh, my kids all went through hunter safety, and I think, you know, I think the. The youngest kid I had going through, I know one kid went through it when he was 10. Um, and he might have started bird hunting at 11 in some state where you could do that. Um, I don't know. I think it's more depends on the kid and their maturity level and, you know, if they want to do it, um, all that. I um, think I got a brother that was in Iowa and I believe his kids started when they were about 10 or so. So mm. I don't know in that 10, 12 year old range seems, seems okay to me, but I think it kind of depends on the kid and if, if they're ready for it. Yeah, that's how I, 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 I was all about the kid Let the kid decide. Yeah, that's pretty much what we came to too. Todd from South Dakota recommended an article, I guess uh, Heffelfinger wrote an article about predators in the mule deer foundation magazine. I haven't, found a copy of it yet but todd from south dakota sent us a text um uh, uh someone sent us a uh, mike duplin mike duplin sent us a text a long time ago it said this is mike duplin famous outdoor hunting writer for western hunting magazine so famous you've probably never heard of me um but <laughs> he ran by uh palisades distillery or peach street distillery in palisades that's right um he got some peach infused bourbon said it was very good i've never had their peach infused bourbon um that's uh dave from wisconsin um he i asked him i just text dave from wisconsin because he told me that he had five white tail tags so he went through in depth how a person in wisconsin can end up with five can end up with five tags um, that's about it on the text messages for this week. Nice. So we've given up, eh? I grew up in Wisconsin, actually, and I still go back there and, and white, hunt whitetails. And I think I got, I think they gave me three tags when I bought one last year, too. Oh, um, nice. One buck and a couple of does, but it depends on which county that you're right, in. Right. I am. Yeah, I'm going to hunt. Uh, for whitetails, I'm going to hunt Indiana, Wisconsin, and uh, and South South Dakota and Texas. So I got four whitetail hunts planned. Uh, public, private, all private, all public. Well, Texas probably is private. Uh, Texas is private. A buddy of mine um, lets me go and hunt on his ranch down there. Um, Indiana is going to be um, some of my brother's property there, so that's private. Um, South Dakota will be public land hunting though. Nice. Um, I meet up with one of my brothers there and and hit some public public spots. We've done that 
it's been quite a few years since we've done it, but we've done it in the past and had some luck there. So I heard South Dakota and North Dakota is phenomenal public land whitetail hunting. There's a lot of public land um, to hunt. Yeah, I am. You know, there's. I, I can't say we found really big bucks where I've gone, but uh, it's you know it's fun to get out anyway. <laughs> Try to get a. You know, an old bu- a big buck for us was like a three and a half year old buck around there. That's about mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. Do you set mm-hmm. stands when you go public land whitetail hunting, or do you do you stay on the ground? Usually, we're um, setting stands, and yeah, I haven't done much on the ground whitetail hunting. Um, I mean, I've got friends that do it in you know uh, in the plain states, and I think it can be very effective for sure. I'm. You know, I grew up hunting in the woods, and whitetail hunting to me was more find a good trail, go during the rut, and um, and and hang a stand. And we'll we'll have some portable stands where we'll be able to be kind of a little more mobile and move around to where the deer are at. But yeah, whitetails. I'm personally, I'm generally been setting stands. Um, if it's, I might I might try hunting with some friends where it's it's wide open and there aren't just aren't many trees and there's get some high ground and spot the bucks on on the does at the right time of the year and watch them bed down and then try and stalk in on them um i i've done that with mule deer with success and uh, i like to try with whitetail but i just haven't done it yet it's so it's just you know mule deer and whitetail being so close in terms of you know a deer species just act so differently like you it's hard spot and stalk whitetail it's almost impossible spot and stalk whitetail with a bow no, it's not impossible. It's all about the rut and the terrain. It's not that much different than antelope, and it's and if if and in those plains. Well, you you said antelope was bloody was bloody tough. So you're you're agreeing with me? It's bloody tough, right? But when you get white white tails, get about as dumb as mule deer when they're in the rut, and 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 then so much of it. I will tell you this: the white tail country where I've had success spotting stalking was two and three and four foot tall grass as well where as, as long as you've got a wind you do a lot of wind work and and get get the wind right and you can you can uh i mean anyone that's bird hunted the plains has kicked up a buck that scared the piss out of them because it was eight feet away from them because it just bedded down and stayed and if you can bed them um it's easier the the difference in this in the difference with the antelope is they bed down in grass that is an inch and a half tall you can see mm-hmm. the entire antelope from four miles away bedded down and he can see you from four miles away mm-hmm. yeah i used to think spot stock on white tails was impossible because i you know as a kid i tried it crawling across a alfalfa field stuff like that but i think my thinking was more like all right, if you spot a deer in the, you know, in the woods 100 yards away and it's, you know, not, it's fairly quiet, the odds of you being able to sneak over there and shoot that buck in the woods when it's quiet is pretty impossible. You know, their senses are, are good. That would be pretty hard. But, yeah, I feel like the, the guys I know are successful. They're, they're laying out on a CRP field somewhere. They spot where they're at. And, and often, yeah, it's windy. They get the wind right, sneak in there. And sometimes they're decoying at the end there because if there's other deer around, they'll be alerted to it. But um, they might flash a decoy, and um, it, it can work. Like uh, Tony Treach, if you follow him and what he does, that's that's his method. He's pretty good at that. Well, Cody, I think we've um, – have we given up on Peach Street Distillery? I think we have. I haven't given up on drinking their agave, but I think we've given up on them listening to us compliment them. Yes. We had a total. Well, uh, I just looked the other day. We had a, we had 31 that I know of. 31 listeners send them something saying, hey, these guys are talking about you on, on Blood Origins. And uh, yeah, they just don't care. But they still make good agave. I don't care. They don't have to care about me to not to make good whiskey. Bill Cody enjoys uh, an agave slash tequila or two on the roundup. And so for quite some time, we were pushing the the brand that he loves the most, which is this Peach Street Distilleries. What's it? Double strength or extra strength or extra special, extra special. Agave extra, yeah. 
Extra, yeah. They're in Palisades. And so we've even... been out to Palisades, Bill? I have, yeah. I've been through that area a lot. Um, I've hunted not too far from there a few times in the past. And actually, my wife was out there last, the Peach Festival. Yeah. I think that was last week. Yeah, she was out there uh, for a couple of days. And she brought home a couple of bottles of, uh, of something. I haven't even looked to see what they are, but. But well, um, yeah, peach bourbon or something like that, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, don't stop in and do not mention Blood Origins because it doesn't work. We <laughs> have not gotten anything out of them. 31 people DM them, 31 people emailed them. We had a guy walk in the store and they were still like, uh, We've never heard of nah. these people. Yeah, so we, we don't, they, they don't care about us. But if she got you the peach infused bourbon, that's what we were just saying that Dave went in and bought from them. It's good stuff. They make they make really good whiskey and I still like not them. Dave, Mike Duplan, you mean. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What was Mike Duplan? Well right. Bill, um as as typical we, we tend to like to hit the things that are um most relevant in the hunting world every week on the roundup. And um obviously I want to start with something that that Cody didn't give you a um a link for, but uh and you may not be aware of it, but today there was a the Commission for Texas Parks and Wildlife Department met. They were given a petition by a new organization called Texans for Mountain Lions. And uh, they denied the petition, but they had an open public comment period today from 2 p.m. where a lot of people showed up. Um, I heard there was, there was quite a crowd. And then tomorrow they're uh, in a closed door session in which they're listening to their staff with regards to uh, recommendations moving forward. I don't know if you heard anything about that. Did you hear anything on the winds of Bill about this? Uh, no, I haven't. So mountain lions in Texas are considered a non-game species. Uh, they do not have any game status. So there is no take limits. There's no seasons. There's You can do whatever you want to take them. Uh, trap lines, there's no hourly... Um, regulations on the trap lines either and there's even it's not specifically stated in the rule book but because it's not it is legal that the uh the petition that these guys texans for mountain lions put forward was that you can actually live trap a mountain lion and you can move it and then release it in a canned hunt type scenario which I think most hunters would say that is pretty ridiculous. Wouldn't you say, Cody? I would, but is that happening? I don't think it's happening. Yeah. However, Ben Masters said that he's got, he's got someone that has confirmed that they have done that. Maybe one guy. But I don't think it's happening very often. Yeah, I, I, it feels to me like... I don't know. I don't know where to... I will say this, it feels like an Australian law. And when I, what I mean by an Australian law, Australians have laws for everything. Right. Like everything. Like you, you, you cannot do this because there's a law for it. You cannot do this because there's a law for it. You cannot do this because there's a law for it. It's almost like you have to write everything down. You have to put laws in place for every scenario out there. Even if there's just the one person doing it. Or a very, very minority doing it. I feel like this is a, a, a much ado about nothing thing on, on, on both sides of it, really. I mean, I don't know why some people, why there's a group of people that are so upset. Like, I don't, it, if there was evidence that all of these, you know, like, if that, that all of these bad things that could happen were happening, then there's a discussion point. Um, I also don't know why some people are so adamantly opposed to it becoming a game species. I mean, I understand there's probably some ranchers who think they have the right to take them out 365 days a year. Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't have brought it up because there are a shit ton of people talking about it and and riled up and forming camps over it. I don't completely understand why either side is as fired up as they are. Well. when this roundup comes out, we've already we would have dropped two podcasts. Go back, guys, if you want to listen. We have two podcasts: one with Ben Masters, um, the guy who created the film Deep in the Heart, in which where where it sort of started, 
And then we have one with Greg Simon. So on two opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to this issue. Bill, have you um, have you chased a mountain lion before? And maybe if you haven't, do you have a desire to hunt mountain lions? Um, the only, I, I've had uh, I've had Drothars for years, which is a German hunting dog. And mm-hmm. uh, they're kind of a versatile dog where I, I can bird hunt with them, but I also blood track with them. And I, they track, I know guys that use them for mountain lions too. Um, when I had two of them, I used to go, when I'd get a fresh snow, I'd go hiking around in the mountains and try and try and cut a track and just track them with my dogs. I thought that would be fun to do. I mean, the challenge there is um, if, if you've got a dog and you've trained it to hunt, you, you kind of understand that, you know, that that's kind of a pretty special thing to train a dog and then have them get it, get, you know, animals, whether it's pointing birds or tracking raccoons or mountain lions or whatever so to me it's it's more um it's the dog does the hunting right but i'm there mm-hmm. handling them and and i think that would be cool to do with dogs that i've trained to uh to track um and but that's still and we never we never did um have any success i've just tried that a few times but um no success cutting the track or no success in the dogs following up the track uh, even even cutting the track, because <laughs> okay. I would do it by hiking miles. I know guys that are successful do it. They'll they'll drive you know mountain roads for you know thirty miles and cut the track. But mm-hmm. I was just hiking areas that I knew had mountain lions in them. I got mountain lions in my neighborhood for that matter. Um, mm-hmm. And anyway, I haven't killed one. Um, I, I'm not you know definitely not opposed to it. I um, yeah, I I feel like. Uh, what you the comment on Texas? I don't know all the issues. I don't know all the. I don't know the whole story there, right? I mm-hmm. mean, my initial thought is, I guess I'm surprised it's not a game species. It's a native species, so you'd think you'd want like wildlife biologists of the state involved with, you know, input on management. Um, and then trapping a a wild animal and then doing with it what you want. It doesn't quite seem right to me either, right? Um, if you're gonna trap it. I think in most states it's illegal to like trap a wild animal and then keep it and do something with yeah. it, like release. You it. can't, you can't do it. You can't move a whitetail in Texas that way. Yeah, so it doesn't quite seem right to me either. I don't, I don't know the whole sure. story and all the issues, but those are my two impressions, I guess, on it. Well, Bill, we we sent you three links um, for articles that uh, thought were worthy of discussion today, and given you as the guest. Uh, we typically hand it over to you to say, well, which one do you want to start with? Uh, I don't care. Pick, pick one out. <laughs> Let's talk about Gordon Ramsay. Yeah, this is a couple weeks old. Um, I, we didn't get it in last week. Um, yeah. Number one, Gordon Ramsay's a hunter. FYI. Right. Oh, okay. Um, th- this, this particular one was a repost of a video that he made choosing a lamb for a meal. Um, and man, I don't understand how people have so much time to create backlash over things like this. You know what, you know what I mean? Like, holy shit, did people get upset? He probably acted a little goofy. Like maybe he acted, you know, he made a, uh, tried to make a funny TV worthy scene out of it. Um, but I don't understand how people have time to get upset about the things they get upset about. Yeah, you can almost, you know, you can see the, the, the people that saw him as being super insensitive. And maybe he, you know, should have known better that something like that would go viral. But in the, in the same instance, he's probably doing it very much in jest. Very much like, oh, you know, who's going to end up on my dinner plate tonight? Which, at the end of the day, regardless of whether he, he, he sort of made fun of the whole activity or the whole act, again, people would, you know, maybe if you're very, very sensitive, say, well, you shouldn't be joking about stuff like that. Okay, I get it. But at the end of the day, it's, a, it, it's an animal that's going to end up on a plate that is meat, that's going to have to die, and he's just deciding. In a, in a jestful manner, again, could have been interpreted as insensitive. 
that that's the one I want. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the reality is for people to meet, eat meat, an animal must die. But I think a lot of people don't want to think about it that way at all. Um, and it upsets them to think about it that way or to see it. And so, you know, he's he's probably was a little insensitive, I guess, or maybe he didn't have an understanding that a lot of people would be upset by that. It doesn't surprise me because even though I grew up in an area where everybody hunted and nobody, and I wasn't very sensitive to people, it, I guess I didn't really realize that people um, just didn't kind of understand that, yeah, an animal dies and that's where you get meat from. And, and um, yeah, so I, I can, yeah, to me, I mean, that's really where the meat comes from. Um, yeah, the way he was saying it, I could, I could see people like not liking that, or that was upsetting to them. But you know, turn it off. You you can always just turn it off, right? Mm-hmm. Don't watch mm-hmm. it. If that's kind of how I feel about, you know, as a hunter, we choose to be involved with, you know, picking out the animal and and you know the death of the animal and the butchering of the animal. And to me, that's just part of being a hunter and we have grown up and that's just part of being a meat eater and a hunter. Um, that's just part of life for me. Um, other people don't choose to do that or they, they're, they're great with eating whatever you want to serve them up at a restaurant, but they don't want to know that it, you know, how it had to die. And so Mm -hmm. that's fine. Then don't watch, don't watch it. You know, um, don't be involved with it if you don't want to. So I podcasted with a girl out of Australia this morning at, um, at 5 a.m. my time, <laughs> and she was in Tasmania, Australia, so we had to get the time difference just right. Uh, but she was a vegetarian, and she decided she wanted to eat meat, and she decided that the way that she felt like was the best way for her to eat meat was for her to do it herself, become a hunter. Yeah, I've given actually given meat to a, f- a few people that were vegetarians or vegans. Um, because a lot of the reason, and I just got to be friends with them through work or whatever, but they were just didn't they didn't like factory farming and what animals you know were going through or whatever. But um, and and I can remember one that was kind of anti-hunting when I met them, but I explained to them about hunting and this animal has a great life up until the time when I I put an arrow through it and it quickly dies, and that's about the best life it can or the best death it can help hope for, you know, in the wild, but had a good life. It was an old animal, whatever. And I cherish the meat, you know, I'm very careful of getting it all and packing it out and, and eating it. And yeah, and I've got a couple of those people that actually wanted some meat after that. And, um, and, and one guy was actually just a guy I met on a trail on a hike out and he was <laughs> totally anti hunting. And we sat and talked and, um, a couple of times. And by the end of it, he said, you know, I think I might try hunting. And uh, I'm like, really, what animal do you think? He's like, I think I think I could shoot a pig, he said. <laughs> so so um, anyway, I, I don't know why I got off onto that. But I've no. there's been a few people that have been vegetarian or vegans that, um, with a little talking to, they thought hunting was okay, which you know, I, I appreciated. Well, that's what we do. That's kind of, that's kind of our mission is to communicate with those people and let them know that uh, – let 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 them know how we look at it and how we treat it and why it's a why it's a thing that we're passionate about. If you want to check out that article, it's on Unilad. Uh, Gordon Ramsay sparks outrage after selecting lamb to slaughter in new video. What a headline! Holy smokes, what a headline! The media is just amazing in terms of their headlines and what they choose to use and and the words and whatnot. It certainly slants different pieces, and I guess that's what we just got to deal with, man. Just got to deal with it. Yeah. All right. Well, it looks like uh, let's come to your home state, Vales in Colorado, right? Yes, it is. Right. And uh, you know what's interesting about this whole Vale housing debacle? Number one, big props, big shout out to Charles Whitwam and Hal for Wildlife. I know that Hal for Wildlife got behind this whole Vale housing issue and Bighorn Sheep Um I think it's big on sheep habitat and migration, maybe a little bit of migration, if I remember correctly. Um, 
and he jumped behind it. And I was very much on the other side of the coin, not other side that I was not opposed to it, but rather I was like, this is a business. And if they've purchased the land and they've got all the requisite permits, you know, those are what the permits are there for. The permits are there to make sure that you've done your environmental due diligence. And if you've checked all the boxes, like, where are we, you know? And it turns out that uh, there was enough pressure pushed down that uh, the Vale Town Council blocked a high-density employee housing project by Vale Resorts, six to one. Is it? There's two sides to this, man. And I mean, you and you just listed them off, but I'll tell you that I'm not. I'm not as uh, I'm gray on it. I'm gray on this whole article. I do not like the idea of the government not letting a person do a thing. I, 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 the, the, the argument that you make may be the way I lean. There's a part of me as a, as a lover of the, the, the earth and the wildlife that's excited for these sheep. There's also a part of me as a, maybe a, uh, anti-establishment person that does not like the idea that these people did everything they were supposed to, um, did everything right, spent the money, bought the land, and then got shut down, you know, at the last second. Bill, thoughts? Yeah, I don't know all the details. I mean, in general, I'm, I'm, I like keeping wild places wild and, minimizing development in you know mountain areas where there's where there's wildlife um i don't know all the details here i mean that's just kind of my my um you know i basically uh, the way i vote is like i want to keep wild places wild and i want to keep access to them um so i i can enjoy them um and yeah so my my first impression is like oh good i think that's good that if this if it's going to affect um, it's a bighorn sheep herd, correct? Yeah, bighorn sheep is supposedly critical winter grazing ground. Yeah, I would say yeah, we should stay out of there. Um, I mean, I've I've, I've had. Don't you think right though on. that if the if we need to to go with that statement, we have to stay out of there. That private land individual now is stuck, right? He's like, well, I'm done. You buy it. Yeah, maybe the state should buy it, buy it from them um, if they want to, you know, protect it. But what's a little weird is it wasn't the state, right? It was like a city, the city council. The city council vetoed the building plans, the building to move forward. Hmm. Suspended all the permits based on the on the land. It's just it's interesting because again, to Cody's point and to the other side of the coin here, that individual did everything right. And, and maybe this, you know, let's take a, a step back. You know, we talked about, we have, well, maybe we haven't addressed it very much, but, you know, when you talk about the Endangered Species Act and endangered species being on your property, you really can't do much about it. Like once it's there, you're handcuffed to, to what the government is suggesting you need to be able to do. This is an endangered species um, in this scenario, but it is limiting the ability of that landowner to use the land that they pretty much have the right to if they own it. So in my 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 opinion, I think the end of the day, the best solution here would be, hey, we've blocked you, but hey, we're gonna we're gonna put the land in a conservation easement at a minimum. That way he's gonna get some money out of it. At a maximum, someone come in, either a state or a nonprofit, buy the land out, put it in perpetual conservation easement for wildlife. And hand it over to the state. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know what the answer is. It's just this is one of those things where where we we've got to look at both sides because somebody, and I know I, I think it's actually Vale Resorts who is getting shafted here, and maybe we don't need to feel real sorry for them, but a private entity, right, exactly. a, 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 a private entity was really got it stuck to them by i mean in in to the tune of millions and millions of dollars got it stuck to them by the city council um and again i think i'm happy with the way the vote went 
I don't like, like I'm happy with the outcome. I don't like the path to the outcome, I think is what it is. I would much rather, right. Have, right. I would much rather have, you know, seen a, a private individual come in and buy it. Or I, 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 I wish it would have happened another way. Cause I don't like the government coming in and telling someone what they can and can't do with their private property. Um, it sounds like in that article, the, one of the last comments on that article says that there are articles that he's read that were more in depth that state that the town will pay fair market value for the land. Well, if that's the case, you know, I can promise you that if Vail Resorts wants to put up some high density employee housing, they'll get it put up. It, 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 it's going to happen. So. You know, maybe if they can buy it from them, they can take that money and go unwild some other place that isn't critical to Bighorns, um, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's just it's a perfect mm -hmm. example of something that there's two sides to and they're both valid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Last thoughts on Vale or you're done, Vale? Um, no, I kind of agree with what you said there is that I think the best case scenario seems like maybe they could pay for the land and and put it in, uh, just like set it aside then for the bighorn sheep and have them use the money to buy a different piece. I'm sure there's somewhere they could put housing that isn't going to affect the bighorn sheep population. So that does seem the best outcome. Yep, 100%. 100%. And lastly, the article that uh, you threw up there, Cody, is a little old because uh, this actually has moved through a little bit already is the non-resident tag allocation uh, up for debate in Wyoming. Uh, a little bit of context here. Uh, a commission, the task force, was, put, was, was created in the state of Wyoming to really evaluate the desire for, to see a 90-10 rule get put in place in the state of Wyoming, i.e. 90% of the tags go to residents, 10% of the tags go to non-residents. Now, if you look across the board, and I may get the numbers wrong. So Jaden Bales, if you're listening to this out of the state of Wyoming, I apologize. Uh, but there are a lot of numbers that were in the 18, 16% already when it came to big game species in the state of Wyoming. Um, and so this was up for the debate. The task force did meet. The task force did approve 90-10 on moose, bison, sheep, and goat. But for the money makers. For the state, they did not. Moneymakers being antelope and elk, specifically. Um, I do want to mention, because I've, I've got the post here, that um, in that scenario, one of the biggest things that was pushed back on was the idea of preference points, because Wyoming is a preference point state, and the 90-10 rule would have taken non-resident um, sheep which i think is is what did i say that got passed moose bison sheep and goat yes so sheep tags preference points for sheep the guys that had like 22 preference points as non-residents it almost mathematically went to like 45 or 46 preference points for a non-resident to draw now um but if you look at the numbers if you look at the numbers the preference point amount this is this is data current license revenue data I believe this is out of 2020. Uh, preference point non-resident sales. Bill, how much money do you think the state of Wyoming brings in with just preference points alone from non-residents? It's got to be a lot. Isn't it like $75 or something, a preference point there? Mm-hmm. Um, Have yeah, a gander. I, I hunted Wyoming last year for elk, so I've just started getting points the last few years. And I don't know. Uh, Many, Throw many millions. <laughs> How many millions? Uh, many. I don't know. Twelve million. Uh, I was gonna guess ten. So yeah, lots. Twelve million foot in total across all the product types that you can hunt in Wyoming. Forty-three million. Forty-three point five million dollars brought into the state of Wyoming from non-resident hunters. Huh. It's still a balanced thing, though. It's, it's just like we it, it, it's a balanced thing that the state and the residents of the state have to decide where they draw a line in the sand. Because, sure. I mean, if, if, if it was just money. Then the Wyoming fish and game should flip the residents, the birds 
and either charge them the same as non-residents or or only only sell to non-residents. Like if it, I mean, I'm saying ridiculous things, but if, if, if the money was the driving factor, there's ways to make more right. money than they're making now. There has to be a balance. And I, uh, I can tell you 100%, I've only lived in Colorado for three. I've only lived in a state. I have never lived anywhere where I couldn't hunt everything every year. Mm. You couldn't do that in Kansas this, this, if you went back to Kansas, my man. Yeah, I can. I got a lifetime hunting license there. If you didn't have a lifetime hunting right. license. But I've never lived in a state. I live on a piece of property that I could hunt mule deer on my own property every year. And there's lots of mule deer on my property, but I can't get a tag. And that's an aggravating thing to me. And I don't want to seem like some spoiled brat that thinks he deserves it. Um, but there's definitely a balance that uh, residents should have should have preference. Yep. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and I don't... It'd be nice if 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 states were all kind of equal in their decisions on that, but they're not, right? Like I feel like Colorado doesn't doesn't do a whole lot for residents, um, and yeah, that bothers me too. Like I uh, I didn't draw a mule deer tag last year. Um, I ended up picking one up leftover, but um, and you know I've got mule deer on my property here. There's mule deer. Uh, there's a lot of places I can hunt mule deer, um, but it's pretty upsetting that as a resident, I can't just get a mule. I can't hunt mule deer every year. I mean, there's that seems to be a big shortage of them. Um, so yeah, I'm with you. I feel like I do feel like residents should have have more hunting opportunity than non-residents in their home state. Um, at the same time, I do like to go and hunt other states. I've hunted. Wyoming and I'm going to hunt Montana this year. Um, hunted Wyoming last year. Um, so I do like having, having some opportunities to go to a second state to elk hunt. And I'm going to hunt elk hunt Colorado. Then I'm going to elk hunt Montana. Um, I like that. I like being able to do that. Um, it's just a general tag. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't want that. I don't want those opportunities to go away to be able to go to other, other states and hunt either. So. Sure. This is the way I look at it. When I go to another state, like I'm grateful. Like I'm not really a very social or maybe even a nice person, but when, when I go to another state, like I feel obligated to be like, I'm great. Like I'm at someone's house and they let me, the, the residents of Idaho last year, let me mule deer hunt there. Right. I don't feel that way here. I feel like I ought to be able to mule deer hunt. You know what I mean? Like, like, and yeah. I, I don't mean it in some egotistical way, but I, I, the, the state of Colorado takes a, several chunks of my money on a regular basis for this piece of property that I own. And, mm -hmm. and again, all it is is anecdotal. Like I see a lot of mule deer. I, I realize the lack of science in the statement that I just made. Um, but I, I firmly believe I ought to be able to, I ought to be able to archery mule deer hunt my property every year. I, I, I feel like that's a thing that I ought to be able to do. Um, and, and, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I think there's gotta be, it's a balanced thing. I, I don't want all the money that I think Colorado probably blows Wyoming's doors off in revenue from non-resident hunters um oh i can imagine um what's an l tag a non-resident l tag now 600 800 900 yeah 600 something and and you know the the non-resident over-the-counter archery elk sales are through the roof um and i don't want that to go away either i don't want the state to lose that revenue source I just think it's something that hopefully someone's constantly looking at it and assessing it and trying to find that that line in the sand where we value a residence right because we pay taxes in this state 
um, but at the same time value the 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 economic benefit from the non-residents as well to take care of the herd. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well said. Before Cody mentions it, Bill, I uh, I like to keep these podcasts just on an hour, and Cody typically gives me grief. And the timing today has been beautiful, Cody. Well done. I'm going to mess it up right here. Bill, <laughs> like, give me a little bit about the company and how you started the company and, and the, those, those types of, uh, mm-hmm. of scenarios. Why, I'm interested. Me. Why is it called Iron Will Outfitters? It's got to be. A, because you would think you, you're an outfitter. His name's William. No, no, no the, it's uh, Outfitters. We're not a. We're not an outfitter. That was a bad. That's a bad choice, actually. <laughs> we are well admitted. Well admitted. I wanted to call it just Iron Will Broadheads because um, by the time I came out with started the company and started making broadheads, I was already prototyping knives and other things. So I didn't want to just say Iron Will Broadheads or really even just Iron Will Archery. Um, so I thought, well, we'll call it Iron Will Outfitters, like we're a gear outfitter. I didn't realize the issues it would cause that people would <laughs> think we're outfitters for like elk hunting. I had a lot of calls How on How many that. people call you and say, hey, do you do this hunt or that hunt? Uh, yeah, dozens for sure, not a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in hindsight, we should call the Iron Will, you know, bow, Iron Will gear or something a little different, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, a little, little bit of the start of the company. I was a mechanical engineer. I uh, developed products for other companies for 25 years. I'm a avid bow hunter. I had a broadhead fail on an elk shoulder blade um, after moving to Colorado. Um, I moved here in 99, and then a few years later, I had a broadhead fail on an elk shoulder blade. And, it, and I just decided I was going to develop a better broadhead that was going to make it to the shoulder and get to the vitals. So I didn't have that problem. Um, long story short, I spent several years testing, digging, really digging into the physics science of, of um, archery, bow hunting, and um, a lot of materials stuff and developed the broadhead that will, will now, you know, I'm kind of very confident, get through that shoulder blade, get a pass through on an elk. Um, and when the performance got to be a point where I felt like, man, I should I should share this with others, I decided to start a company. Mm-hmm. Well, don't get into too many t- details, not because of podcast length, Cody. But, um, uh, Bill, I want to have you back on the podcast just in a very sort of hard-hitting, science-nerdy type of conversation about lethality of broadheads and twist and all all the all the good things that i know that you you geek out on sure yeah sounds good um it would it would it wouldn't be right if i didn't ask this question um bill and i'm putting you on the spot so you probably can't say no because there's a huge audience listening to you right now um but we we have a supporters program that um you know people donate a cup of a coffee so the cost of a cup of coffee to us every month, three bucks a month, four bucks a month, four, five bucks a month. And we have a sweepstakes that people can win things, gift cards. We have a number of broadhead companies in there right now. Uh, and love to put Iron Will in there as well. You know, maybe once a quarter, give them a couple of broadheads out of Iron Will. And um, I think it would be a fantastic thing for people. And, you know, we get a little bit, of, you get a little bit of marketing out of it. Um, but that's not why you're doing it. You're doing it to support us and, and you know these people that uh, love your product potentially get a, a, a set, uh, you know, gratis. Yeah, sounds good. I'd be happy to donate some broadheads. Yes. 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 Can't really say no, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, it's been a pleasure, and I, and I really am. I'm very excited for the next podcast uh, because you know, just as I started this conversation, I think that's how I'll start the next podcast. Is really just like giving you a thorny question to say. There's no way broadheads can be as lethal as a gun. And that's where we go. Yeah. Yeah, sounds good. We can we can talk about that for sure. Cody Heidsmith, are you um chasing any animals? Or are you just calming down and and just holding all of your luck for Africa? Are you taking your bow to Africa? Please tell me you're not taking your bow to Africa. No, I'm not taking my bow this time. Um I think I'm gonna chase the antelope the rest of this week. Okay. Cool. 
found, well, if you if I you are successful, I found the antelope. We'll put it on the Blood Origins pod. We'll, we'll we'll put you on the Blood Origin Blood Origins influencer platform and show everyone your success. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely have some Africa pictures. Uh, the antelope thing, you know, I've I've found some great spots. It's just the the stars haven't haven't quite aligned for me yet at, at these spots. Well, when you're in, when you're in Africa, ask your PH or ask your track and Skinner, you know, ask them the hard question, which is, what would you do if hunting goes away tomorrow? We'll do. Video it us. Video it and, and send it to us. Yep. Bill, it's been an absolute pleasure, my man. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, good talking to you guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Bill. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. Four in the morning. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners. Every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.